You are listening to Lockdown, a security and technology podcast brought to you by Voxiferi Broadcasting. Subscribe now to this and other Voxiferi shows via your podcast client of choice. Lockdown, a security podcast from Red Hat. Recorded at Cloud Security Expo 2016. Recording at Cloud Security Expo in London at the London Excel Center. Sitting opposite me is a man who has built up a track record of advising everyone from the Department of Homeland Security downwards. Would you say Department of Homeland Security downwards? Would that be the correct term? Uh, maybe cross crosswords, uh, different industries. I, th- I think that'd be better. <laughs> I'm trying to promote people in DHS who have a clue. Okay, right. So sitting opposite they're me, fantastic they are fantastic people, and they pay our wages. Um, sitting opposite me is J.R. Regan, who is a very well read very well versed security proponent who has been uh, understanding and defining really what security risk and also what security controls and what governance looks like but also talking common sense to the common man would you say that's correct i i you know i think that's a compliment and i'm glad you picked up on that that's exactly where i try to go most of the time you know i think that uh Sometimes we get into so much technology and so much detail that you need to back it up and say, you know, how does this really work uh, from a common man point of view? And if I don't understand it and I can't write it that way, then probably others people, other people won't be interested either. But Deloitte have got a really good track record of being at the cutting, bleeding edge of technology over the last decade and a half. Yeah, I think that was uh, something that was picked up on early that, you know, through a lot of trial and error, actually. Uh, you had to be in this digital age. What could you offer? What's new? Uh, are, are you just going to say the same thing as everyone else? And particularly, I think, because we are sensitive to what are clients trying to do, the only way you can get to that heart of that question is by offering up something unique. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we, we try to advise our clients on something really different and edgy and, you know, where is this going to go with the business? I did a podcast a few weeks ago at the Moscone with Lance James, ex Deloitte. Yeah, and I think he, 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 he learns a lot from you. Yeah, he, he's a great guy. And, um, you know, I think we're fortunate to be able to get folks like him attracted to Deloitte so we're not just all, you know, high level advisors. And uh, he's a great guy. Uh, glad he's been successful out there. He's trying to be successful out there. I don't want to blow his ego up too much. I'm with you. Now somebody has to actually give him a bonus. Yeah, give him a bonus that he buy more hats. Okay, so we're going to be talking today about the growing culture of DevOps and trying to do it right. Do you think there's enough guidance from management to these guys and these women, these people in the DevOps communities who are developing the code that really we're hanging our hats on? Well, I, you know, I think we're at this new juncture. You know, the the uh, the ops folks and the dev folks have always sat separately, and now in some organizations we're throwing them together. That's good, but in a large, uh, in many organizations, we're still trying to do this through a process. Here's a piece of paper. Follow that, and we need to integrate them a lot more because at the end of the day, the ops folks know how this stuff is supposed to be working and deployed in a scenario based uh, culture. The dev folks are really heads down on the how do you make the bits and bytes work. And if you don't have them literally sitting side by side, this just becomes an academic exercise. Do you think, though, you know, the old culture of change control 
do you think that's changing? Well, it's change control, and it's um, sort of that sense of ownership. You know, I, you could imagine the dev guys, maybe rightly so, saying, I don't want the ops guys telling me what to do. I'm smart. I'm the smartest guy in the room. I know how to code. At the same time, you get the, the ops folks going, geez, for the hundredth time, we get the dev folks coding this stuff, and it's not secure. And So you really have to have that tone at the top that has one person who can span both worlds, who can enforce this. Because, you know, everyone does what the boss thinks is important. And if there's no one to sort of mash heads and, and bring these folks together, um, this is going to take a long time to change. But it's so easy now to go to cloud with a credit card. And I think it makes some people so risk-averse. Yeah, it m- makes actually uh, people risk-averse. But for the business, they just uh, throw caution to the wind. That's kind of why they're doing it. It's been so hard to get things through that DevOps culture, and so it's easier just to get out the credit card and pay for that. You know, I think that there's great opportunity here, great opportunity for this DevOps to show up and actually say, look, you know, we can actually help you in this cause. We can actually uh, take away that risk if you actually engage us on this and not pull out your credit card. But Deloitte, you're working with big ticket companies who've got one reputation. We do. Uh, and, you know, certainly the brand aspect of this, many brands, many companies are feeling this in a big way. And so I think that there's maybe, at least in my own opinion, in the last 18 months or so, I've seen organizations willing to sit up and take this seriously. Before, it was kind of nice to do. Now, it's sort of, if we don't, holy crap, we have to, we have to pay a lot of money. And uh, so that's the sea change. I'm seeing the sea change uh, lately. Do you also find, you know, there needs to be a culture change. I find that attracting new customers, that has a cost of sales. Retaining customers has a cost of sales. But once you've lost a customer through a data breach, it's very hard to retain them and to keep them. Yeah, it's interesting, though. You even look at the biggest uh, organizations that have gotten hit. It took that major, major event for them to really sit up and take notice. And when it was super expensive. And I'm a little bit fascinated still about organizations that can read those headlines and still say, well, maybe tomorrow. Uh, you know, just still it's easier to do the status quo. And I think there's uh, probably going to be some more regulation that forces that hand. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also going to be uh, probably the customers who are saying, I'm not willing to do business with you unless you can get this, uh, unless you can show me that you're doing this right. I think companies like Deloitte, though, are ideally placed with a new CNAP initiative, you know, this new chunk of money that's coming from from federal government three three and a half billion dollars this year 17 billion dollars over the next three it's a lot of chunk of change but it's got to be done right it's got to be done right and i know a lot of those folks who are initiating that and driving that from the federal side and they have great intentions uh, they have great um uh you know ideas of where this needs to go but it's really hard changing this uh, culture even in the federal government the u.s side uh, because you have to make uh, you know huge changes and be more rapid in those changes. Uh, they're not really organized to do that in a lot of cases. And I'm, I'm more encouraged now through some of the things I'm seeing, whether it's procurements or just how they're organizing to move quicker and not just uh, chalk this up to big, long, monster, multi-year things that frankly just don't fit now. One of the uh, guys I grew up with here in the UK became a US nationalized citizen and worked for us.gov and worked his way all the way up to director of cybersecurity at the irs i was in dc i was walking down the national mall with him one morning very early in the morning going up to see i think i was going to see the vietnam war memorial the korean war memorial and he said one of the things you don't understand is it's like trying to turn 
the biggest tanker in the world around with penalty clauses from suppliers and everything that you try and turn stuff off. You can't. Yeah, in, you know, you think about just projects in general, project management in general, how hard it is to shut something down in a, in a company, in an organization. Now you're doing this at scale, at huge scale, not just shutting things down but changing it. And you have to do this through other people. And, you know, frankly, the, there's many out there that would uh, – would think this too shall pass and sort of stiff arm that. But there's, but I think, at least, again, in my opinion, we're starting to see a change, especially because the leaders there are sort of forcing a new attitude. And I know some of them. Some of them used to even work for me. And, and, and because I know their temperament, I'm encouraged that, um, you know, we'll, we'll get some change here. I, when I was reading the articles, I, I, I was looking at the money involved and imagining every Beltway Bandit pri- you know, pricing up a new BMW and the likes of Fire Eye and Mandy and thinking, wow, this is money t- like taking candy off a baby. But I think US.gov has also got to educate the users and the corporate users. Yeah, I think that um, there's a huge amount of, um, you know, I, I wrote an article a while ago about uh, the 5.9 security problem. I do it as sort of tongue-in-cheek. Because if you think about the telecom world, it took them many years to go from a very choppy, disconnected infrastructure to one that really, when you get that dial tone, when you pick up the phone, you know it's there. And for security, there has to be that sea change as well. And it involves both government and the private sector, and it requires uh, engineering this at scale. And that's a whole different kind of national initiative to me that is different than just everyone deploying AV, firewalls, DevOps, all independently. One of the positive things I think that's going to come out of it is, you know, there's a renewal of trust because the whole Snowden thing maybe eroded some of that, at least US.gov trying to make right. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, scenario that you could sit on both sides of that, uh, of that situation, uh, that scenario. You know, what, um, what happened there, though, did sort of unleash a, a new debate on what needs to happen, how far things need to go in terms of, A, security, B, privacy, uh, C, just doing this across, uh, you know, the world. And in some sense, I think that spurred a renewed, um, you know, emphasis on security and what the responsibility is between the government and the private sector. I can see a sea change happening where... We are in. I work a lot in the banking and the finance sector with Mm. with Red Hat, and I think all the CISOs are always looking over their shoulder to see who's going to get burnt first, or to see where to put their specific pot of money this year. CISOs have really got to go back to the board and ask for more money, haven't they, to just try and keep this stuff afloat? Yeah, it's interesting. If I look at particularly some of the financial services firms, there's a few in particular where the CEO of those financial uh, services firms have come out and said security is the one department which does not have a budget. It means it can spend unlimited amounts of money. Of course, there's um, you know a watchdog on that. But that is a really uh, incredible statement of, if it takes that much initiative and potentially that much money to secure, to me it's creating what I call the security poverty line of companies that aren't even close to being at uh, the baseline of where they need to be. And the significant amounts of money that it, would, that it takes to be world class, that's a whole different area. So this is uh, something that's going to go through uh, even more dramatic sea changes, just like you said. I've also noticed that for years I've been the guy who's always said no and no one's wanted to be my friend because I'm the security guy. Now everyone wants to be my friend. Yeah, it's uh, the responsibility of the CISO now to be able to 
you know, really communicate that. But Ace, you know, as you mentioned, say no uh, when it makes sense and be able to defend that. Mm-hmm. That's the hardest part is to be able to do it in such a way that people will agree with you when you give them the rationale. Just saying no by itself just creates, um, you know, antagonistic kind of situation. But I think there's a willingness now for folks to listen to why. And and when that happens, uh, you know, I think the CISO then becomes a partner in that in that business, in that boardroom that they didn't have uh, the opportunity for. But the CISO and the network guys haven't always been the best of friends. You look at the target attack, it was through a supplier network. I bet you the CISO didn't even know that supplier network majority was there. Yeah, it's, you know, again, it goes back to scale, that now the the edges, the, the perimeters disappeared. So where, you know, where's the responsibility here? You know, it's uh, CISO as an organizer versus a director in a lot of cases. And it's organizing, you know, network guys. Tell me what's on our network now. Business folks, what have you, just, what have you signed? And I even run across this uh, sometimes of, uh, you know, that credit card scenario. People going out and just procuring another, um, you know, web server, another data center and, and doing stuff. And you don't even know. Uh, this is the hardest part is just that ebb and flow on the edge. And the threat fabric increases as well because that's yet another lot of identities you've got to manage. Yeah, and it probably causes us to rethink how we do this. Um, certainly, you're looking at some of the uh, the, the bigger ISPs and, and uh, search firms that are rethinking their uh, approach to this. But I thought it was a good statement I heard a year a few years back. You know, it goes to that um, uh, you know the the attack surface. There's probably going to be 10,000 ways today, 10 million ways tomorrow to get in, but they're after a few things. Mm. So when we start thinking about that DevOps uh, scenario, there goes to, uh, you know, what are the scenarios we need to be protecting for regardless of the ways that they get in? And I think there are the opportunities for folks to get together. Many companies haven't even got an action plan. Well, they think they think they have an action plan, and most of them will have something in place just uh, to be able to protect themselves on a minimal uh, basis. But I know from my own experience, uh, taking my own advice as the global CISO I, and consulting for others, that to do an action plan that actually works, it takes a tremendous amount of time, and it takes you, you have to exercise that. It's just like playing football, right? Uh, you can't just show up on game day and say, yeah, I remember the plan that you drew up on the whiteboard. It's got to be something you to exercise, and many many organizations don't do that. Do you think you could make an argument that maybe it's time to start thinking about ranking and valuing assets? It's not just about how much your server's worth. It's that process or that data set or that market that you're trying to attract you need to go to how do you value it what what is the potential risk to the organization yeah and i see that there's different models now to to do that um it's whether or not the business ends up taking that and doing anything with it that's what i'm starting to see is there's much more of a desire now for the business to uh, you know look at that as a quantification because we have things like cyber insurance they're asking those questions if i'm going to give you this cyber insurance you've got to be able to dimension this for me somehow so I think that um, the the response by the business to be able to ingest that evaluation and even ask for more of it, um, there's a cause, there's a, uh, there's a reason to do that. Over the last few years, I've had a regular guest on this show, Richard Steinen, Richard Steinen yeah, the, the author. Yeah. So Richard and I, we regularly get together. Um, I've pushed 
copies of There Will Be Cyber War into every executive officer's hand at Red Hat. Whether they've read them or not, I'll just use the proper table up. And I have my copy. Uh, and, I, and remember, he has a big head up there in uh, RSA buses uh, in, in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. with, with the stickers on the side yeah, of the bus. Wonderful, sure. I was, I was walking, I was, I was walking th- I think I was coming up Powell and saw the bus with Richard's face on the side of it. That's great. Well, I mean, he looks great at, you know, 12 by 12. So, uh, you know, that'll be good for another book. Well, we were sitting in a restaurant in Bath in the West Country in the UK where I, where I live, and uh, he came down to see me a few weeks ago, and just before RSA. And he was looking through cyber insurance contracts to try and find the get-out clauses for the, for the, for the insurance company. And, and there is one that says, in the case, in the event of war, we don't pay out. And they define a DDoS as war. Yeah, it's actually easier than that, uh, in my view, for, for uh, insurance companies to get out. And it's just that whole do care. You know, you're buying insurance and you're saying that because of the good uh, actions that we do, we're trying to do the best we can. And if something happens, an act of war, um, you know, natural event, uh, anything, hacking, then you'll pay out. The problem is it's very hard these days, going back to what we talked about earlier, to put in place a plan that is defensible, that you can show we did everything possible. Do care. Uh, And because of that, then this was just purely an act that we need an insurance to pay out for. And uh, most companies, in my view, can't demonstrate that. And as you said before, there's there's this separation, this almost this divide appearing between companies that can afford it and can't. Yeah, and I'm not sure where that's going to go, honestly. You know, can the small firms that have, or even medi- medium-sized firms that have really important assets, can they afford to invest <laughs> a huge amount of, uh, of uh, dollars and against a problem? Probably not. So I think that then this says that it has to get easier. Uh, things have to converge. It has to be a lot. Uh, and maybe we need this utility, you know, like that telephone example, which you can plug into. Because I just don't see it as a scalable response uh, for every company to be able to expend that much money to protect it. So maybe we need a crystal ball that's going to affect how companies are valued. Say you're in an M&A activity with an organization. When was the last time an M&A valuation took into account that company's security defenses? It probably never happened. Actually, it's happening a lot these days. I'm surprised. Uh, you know, I would say, again, past 18 months where it's really picked up. Uh, and even in the venture capital world, it's picking up before somebody will... Uh, invest in a company they're asking those security questions there's just this fear unknown 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 that people are trying to get at uh, that we did not see before and and I've even seen one deal get uh, torpedoed in the in the M&A space because uh, one they found that they were uh, uh, wide open internally and somebody had been there for a while so the assets that they were buying were completely compromised I look at the 10K and the 10Q findings for a lot of companies in the embedded space. These guys is with the UTM devices that they sell out to Uncle Sam. That's in every Navy ship, every diplomatic you know, office everywhere in the States. So a lot of these companies base their technologies on Linux and open source, but they're too tight to actually pay for Linux and open source. They just roll their own. And then they deploy a tarball when it comes to patching it. If you look through their 10K and 10Q line 21 26 normally when they talk about risks these future forward-looking statements and risks and very often you see in the small print our device uses linux we don't have any control over it whatsoever you know we're liable for patches to be deployed and there may be a time lapse between us being able to update open ssl or apache or binder or whatever on these devices 
what advice would you give them to start doing it properly? Because I'll tell you what, these companies are building their fortunes on very small amounts of intellectual property. Yeah, I think that you can't discount open source. So that would say then that anyone who sees that clause in that 10K, 10Q would say, we need to do a thorough evaluation of this. And if they decide that this is too uh, critical, this is, I mean, we're buying this company because of the IP within it, then the, you know, as part of that M&A cost, they're going to have to consider whether they convert that to something that's not open source. Those are considerations that ne- were never there before. This was purely you buy IP and you, and you get you know whatever you bought. Now you're having to think about whether it's secure, whether you need to convert it, um, because you know one thing that's constant now is you take this uh, data out of an organization and you're not left with a whole lot of value in most cases. I'm not going to name any companies because I don't want an attorney breathing down my neck. But you know we could name ten companies off the top of our head who have these embedded devices where. Ninety percent of the R and D's being done in the open source community because they're just taking a Linux distribution and paring it down to its bare minimum. It's hard then to think about well, how do I securely tie this into my network if the company I'm acquiring the technology from can't influence that upstream project and has no relationship with the, the original company where it came from? Yeah, you know, I, I am a big believer in the whole uh, uh, platform kind of thing where you open it up to providers, and that that's when you get scale and innovation and I'm just a big believer in that. What I think has got to change, though, is just not the open, let's take it and integrate it, and that's it. I think that there's much more evaluation that has to go on, much more responsibility that has to go on. It goes to that DevOps you know, thing we started uh, talking about, where there has to be uh, a tighter uh, knowledge of, of this network and the things on it, including the things that get bought and, and integrated. Um, a whole different discipline than we're used to. We're used to, you know, especially on the security side, you know, putting in place products and, you know, doing mm-hmm. some pen testing and, you know, call it a day. And now we're going to have to get a lot uh, more integrated down at the source code level. Are you managing to educate customers or trying to warn them ahead of time that continuous audit is going to be a thing? Yeah, we well, it's uh, we don't even have to advise that. It's just happening in many cases where they're – their regulators, their customers are asking them. So it's this um, this continuous cycle. Uh, and, and it's uh, really interesting when especially the largest uh, uh, companies are doing business around the world. So what they really want to know is tell me that you're doing security the same way in a company uh, in country over in Asia as you are doing it in the in Americas or EU. And that's really outstripping the ability of some organizations to be able to describe that, to have a common operation across the globe. Uh, and then you add on top of that the continuous monitoring and auditing. We're back to the scale issue again. And data, at the end of the day, has got to be mined and understood in order to be able to work out what risk looks like. Yeah, if, if that's the coin of the realm, if that's what we're trying to protect against, you know, we, you know, the basics just aren't there in, in a lot of cases of being able to have asset classification in, in many cases. Um, you know, where is this data flows going? How do you know, uh, for example, when you put it in the cloud, that it is secure? You know, demonstrate that to me. Show me the controls. Um, and, you know, just adding on to this, uh, this very difficult problem, the aspect that data is going to fly around the world at rapid paces and be combined with their, uh, things. Uh, geez, maybe I need another career at this point. No, you don't. What I've noticed is, though, all the top people in security have all gone prematurely gray. 
And if you notice, or at least I have my hair. I think that's the next stage of this uh, of this process where now I lose the hair and, and I get the, you know, uh, I can't go running or golfing anymore. This is a very depressing interview at the end here. Well, I'm not trying to depress you, but what I am trying to do is the thing is to, to get you sat in front of me with a microphone is a coup, but also the fact that hopefully people listening to this will – you know, this isn't this isn't a, po- a podcast about respite care for the security and firm. Okay, that's not where we're going. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to educate the masses and say, look, if you're going to take risks, it's calculated risks. Make sure you have an action plan. You understand governance, risk, and control. Make sure you understand what privacy means to you and what the cost of loss of reputation potentially means to you. Yeah, and you know, I think we've been guilty in the security profession of being black and white. You know, the answer is hard and fast and. It's just not that way. It's shades of gray. And it requires us to be able to influence those decision makers on here's your choices. You cannot do it, and here's the risk. You can do something, and here's the, the residual risk. Here, you know, we can invest more, and here's what you get. And, um, you know, I, I counsel a lot of the folks that uh, ask me to, to mentor them sometime that this is the one thing they need to work on. This, the traditional skills that most business folks have of being able to influence because that's the only way this is going to get through. And uh, we've got a lot of things we need the business to change. Joe, it's been great having you on the podcast. This has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Subscribe with iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast client now for more shows in our back catalog. Catalog.